deal with the facts as they evolve and as long as you don't know, assume that all of it is true. And that might be mind boggling at first, but it also sets you free because it sets you free from all these discussions about who's right and who's wrong. It actually focuses you on what you can do, what you can contribute to the situation. It has to start somewhere. It has to start with education and it also has to start with moving the needle a bit so that they can feel they can do that. The more we learn, the more we read, the more those filters that Nadine was talking about, they fall away. So there is this offloading of that responsibility. And I think the biggest shift will be when we break that down and people take ownership of that on both sides. Now is the time. You're invited to join us, a movement of leaders who are willing to step into a new approach to leadership across the global landscape. This is as simple as humanity being just you and I and stakeholders being the value you place on each decision to add or take away from humanity going forward. Hold a minute. Stay with us. We know people like you want to play at a different scale. And these conversations help create the opportunity for you to take this up a notch or two or a whole lot more. With a curiosity, let's dig deeper behind the scenes to see the why, the what, the where, the who, and the when. From other smart humans who make smart decisions and innovate smart, sustainable solutions to narrow the gap from problem to solution. Learn in today's conversation how you can begin to do this. Come, join us. And we've got some amazing people. So I'm going to hand over the, the panel to an awesome girl in my world. Um, she's a local girl, local when I'm home. So the thing about being on on uh, no travel is that I'm actually in around and it's uh, Sam Riley or Samantha Riley. I don't know how you do it in the professional scene, Samantha. It's like Ingrid. <laughs> it's like Ingrid. I know her as Ivy. So I know Samantha as Sam. But we have a fun conversation on a panel that you're going to be making sure you facilitate that. And that's around how do we empower the future of healthcare, analysing the facts versus fiction. I mean, it's such an important topic, right? But so, so important right now with what's happening in the world. Yeah. So thanks, Sam, for your willingness to step up and uh, facilitate this. And you bring some goodness and what you do in the world and particularly within entrepreneurs. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you bring out of this this panel and amazing droplets of wisdom that each single person that's on this panel you know has and brings to the table yeah thank you thank you for everyone that's already spoken to my brain's already stretched and we're not even you know like halfway through day one it's so awesome but let's do a very quick and I say quick because I know Kiri Marie has told me how much gold everyone's got to share so I just want to welcome the panelists very quickly so first off Jill Place, who's a worldwide wellness advocate and the good gut queen. Welcome so much to the panel, Jill. Oh, and the real queen. I actually have several. I love it. I love it. Thank you for being here. And Dr. Tom Forfer, founder of, now I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Past Gamset. Is that right? Yeah, perfect. Excellent. Great to have you here. And Johan Nagira, founder of Business Authorities and, as I know, many, many other different ventures. And it's great to have you here as well, Johan. 
Thank you for having me. So good. Now, before we start, we also need to introduce Nadine Sinclair, who's joining us via video. So we're just going to watch a quick video, or actually it's about, it's about 15 minutes, just under 15 minutes of Nadine introducing herself and the topic. I think Can I say still- don't be scared about it? It's amazing. So it's good 15 minutes. <laughs> All right, everyone. I'm just taking over for a second. Bear with me while I get the technology working and we get the video of Nadine up. It's an interview that Kiri Marie did just this week. I will share it. Hopefully you can all see that. Can I get some thumbs up or nods of heads? You can see black. Can you see black? And if I press... Okay, I see the red light. I have a question for you that I reckon you are going to just peel behind it the layers that we might not think about but in the work that you do I think it will just be you know insights that maybe we haven't thought of so here's the question for you how do we empower the future of healthcare analyzing the facts versus fiction okay hi everyone this is Nadine Sinclair from Mind Matters And how we're going to separate fact from fiction going forward in healthcare, but also beyond is one of the big questions, in my opinion, that we are facing globally at this point in time. And I think thinking back to the recent months as a scientist by training, what became very apparent to me that is that people have very different approaches of how they deal with information. And especially if you looked in the media, social media, what became very apparent is times actually shocking for me was there seemed to be only a black and white there seemed to be no gray areas people believed either this was true or it wasn't true but there was no middle ground and people were actually more busy fighting with each other who's right and who's wrong to actually having an educated discussion or an informed discussion around what is actually if both sides are right and If you're a scientist like myself, you look at facts slightly differently because you never look at them as something that is set in stone, but it's a continuously evolving story as more information becomes available. And I also understand that most of us have not been brought up or trained that way. And it's something that might feel alien to people who know that if they're presented with information or in the past, they knew that it was that was fact and but the truth today has many more layers in, in a way that the truth is evolving, facts are changing, but there's also, and I read something about it yesterday, something which is called deep fake. And it's actually where people are di- deliberately using artificial intelligence to create videos, presenting people like myself just now, or you on the forum or you listening, and you will be saying things that you actually never said because we're so, advanced now that what we can see as a video evidence might not be true. And that really puts us into a place where we can either just pick something that we believe in and defend it with everything, which we see a lot on social media, or we can take a very different stance that is to say, what if all of these truths were true? And how would I behave then? How would I act? How would I talk knowing that there is a spectrum of truth and not a single truth. Because if I have to, if I have to take into account that all of these things might, true, might be true, I have to ask myself, which way do I want to behave, knowing that all of these things are or could be true, that my family, my loved ones, 
but also my community or the bigger humanity is served to a purpose. Thinking about uh, the current COVID situation, how do I want to behave knowing that all these possible truths exist so that I, no matter which truth materializes as the real truth going forward, I can know that I have done my best stepping up as a, as a leader in my community and behaved in a way that was for the, I want to, don't want to use the word creator good, but <laughs> which serves people beyond, say, myself and my family. So how would I need to behave? Would I wear a mask or would I not wear a mask? Would I wash my hands? Would I not wash my hands? So if there's no single truth, you know, how do you deal with this information? And I think for me personally, the way is deal with the facts as they involve. And as long as you don't know, assume that all of it is true. And that might be mind boggling at first, but it also sets you free because it sets you free from all these discussions about who's right and who's wrong. It actually focuses you on what you can do, what you can contribute to the situation. So how do you analyze things? What is your sort of process along the way? Because there are so many facts out there. How do we know that the facts we're being presented with are the true facts? That's a good one. We don't. We we don't. So then let's not make decisions at the table. (laughs) Well, the thing is, you know, it's, it's almost like scenario planning, contingency planning when, you know, when you have an uncertain future and you, you point out that, you know, you start painting out what are the different futures you can take. And then you say what would need to be true for this future to materialize. And then you, and then you can think, okay, if this were the future to materialize, which behavior, which thoughts, which actions would I need to take for this to be a good future, not just for myself, but also beyond myself and my family. Mm. And you can do this when you set yourself goals. With your work, if you use that as your lens right now, Mm. what does that mean for you and what you're doing and how you do that or going to do it? Yeah. I mean, in our work, it means a lot because we work with people and their mental health. It means also helping people find that flexibility in thinking. Because if you're not flexible, you will zoom in on one truth. You will zoom in on one pattern of thinking. Because the way, I mean, we're bombarded with billions of bits of information every day and our brains just can't handle that much information. So we use filters, like a spam filter on your computer. Mm. And the filters also means that we can't see what's outside the filter because that's the whole point, right? Reducing the amount of information that is coming in. And really deliberately opening up these, some of these filters to see the bigger picture again is, is one of the things we do with our clients. And I, and I give you an interesting example, or actually two from research. Yeah. One is, and I'm outing myself for my age now, if you know the game Tetris, right? Yeah. Little shapes, geometric shapes yeah. falling from the top of the screen and your goal is to make a continuous line. Yeah. There has actually been Why research. Pac-Man, by the way. <laughs> that's where I age anyway okay <laughs> I still know Pac-Man <laughs> so yeah so they have done research with people where they ask them to play Tetris for hours and hours and hours and end and what they found afterwards is that people could not switch it off they would see geometric shapes falling from the sky they would go into a supermarket and automatically rearrange the shelves so that they would fit a form a continuous line they couldn't switch it off because they have installed the filters in their mind to, to see these shapes and see how they could fit together. And the same 
applies actually to our daily life. And I think an experiment that has shown that very well is they asked people, I think it was a basketball game. They asked them to view basketball game and they said, you have to count how often this team is passing the ball. And if you get it right, you get paid. So people were so focused on it. So imagine you're watching this game, you see the ball going forth, back, forth, back, and you're really focused. You want to catch, you know, the right number of ball passes so that you can get paid. So in the end, what happened, they asked people, okay, how many times did the team pass the ball? And people gave their answer and they said, okay, did you notice anything unusual? And most of the people didn't, but there was very few people who noticed that actually during the experiment, there was some guy in a gorilla costume was walking through the, the court. But again, it shows that most people didn't notice it because they were so focused on the filters they already had. So the first step, if you want to deal with information differently, is you have to consciously work in taking out these filters and look at the whole picture again. Wow. Wow. So how do we do that in a better way? Like, how can we be, now that you've given us an awareness around an insight, how do we take that and put it into practice? Yeah, it's a good one. I think it comes down to conscious and deliberate choices. So the first one is becoming aware that you have a filter. Because if you don't know that you have a filter, you can look at the same information as often as you like and will just see it the very same way. So really taking the step back, I think discussions like this forum is, is one step, really opening up these filters. But another step is really just asking yourself, what could be a different truth? What would be a different way of looking at it? If you see one of these eternal arguments on Facebook that are going on now, for example, where people are really getting worked up about their side of the truth. Put yourself in somebody else's shoes who's arguing the opposite point and ask yourself, what if it were true? What would I believe? What would I see? Which facts would I look at? How would I argue if I believe that was true? So really making that change in perspective, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, asking what could be other truths to this, that with the same facts presented, which we don't know if they're truths, but just facts, could be true. So and then see, if we if we put our, you know, put it into other people's perspective as a lens, then what do we do with that? So now all of a sudden, I've taken on board, I'm listening, and I realize that maybe, maybe that you have a point because what you say is true. And now I go, what do I do with that? How do I bring it up a level? You take it up a level. If you, if you then, then imagine you're stepping into a helicopter and looking at this and see all these different points of view. Now, imagine if you're looking down at a collective, all of these collectively are true because they're the truth of the people looking at the same information. So you can ask yourself from up there, if everything is true or all of these truths are true, how would you need to behave? How would you need to speak? What would you, message would you need to send to take these into account? And I think it really requires a flexibility in, in, in thinking because it's really a lot of comfort saying this is true, tick mark, I can move on to the next one. But if things are not true and they're constantly evolving, it means that I have to reevaluate constantly, take this helicopter perspective and say, what if all of these things are true? Because we can't know. Yeah. Most of us will not have a means to separate truth and fiction. Mm, that's such an interesting 
interesting thinking and insights that you talk about and it goes right back to what I believe of that we need to be smart people who start thinking and acting and doing and because of that we need to be able to what I say you know use the muscle of human intelligence and like to me this is just the insights that you speak of here creates another like it's like I'm starting to move my my muscle of human intelligence as I take on board another thing that I go, ah, how could I put that into play? How do you describe that in a way that is, you see it beneficial to a way to move forward in? That's a good one. Loads of good questions. Yeah, I like the, the image of a muscle of human intelligence. And actually, we use something very similar when we work with our clients. We tell them their mind, their brain is just like a muscle. So you work it like in the gym, deliberately, deliberate action, focused action will give you results. If you stop working the muscle, it will waste away. But you have also some of the memories. The next time around, you're going to come back stronger. So I think realizing that you're not set in your ways, as, as the old saying goes, but you are flexible. You can train like a muscle. And it's your mind, your human intelligence that you can, can train it's maybe not as much of a burden anymore, but also it can be extremely empowering using that muscle because in a way you're training your mind for opportunity because you have that flexibility where you before so only challenges, you will start opening up for opportunities. Yes. So that's, that's my point of view in that. I totally agree with you. And how do you see it in the work that you do, those that are able to use their muscle of human intelligence, how's that benefiting in businesses, companies, organizations? What do you see? Well, I'd say, you know, if you use that muscle, your business will be open for opportunity. You will not focus on what is going wrong or what opportunities that you had planned for before you can go after, but you will work with the situation and adapt because you train your entire mind, the culture in your company, you, try, you train them to be nimble on their feet. It's like, I'm a boxer, so I really always like to compare it with chess. And I say, when people say, why do you like it? I say, it's like chess, just faster. In a way, you want your company to be like that. Right? Strategic, but really nimble on, the, on, on your feet. Okay. And we're back to... Brilliant. Thank Sam. you, Michelle. Awesome. I'll hand wow. over to you. Thank you. So, lots of insights there. Jill, I'd love to know, let's start with you. What has this stirred up for you as you were watching what Nadine was talking about? Well, I think we really have a, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, cool. Because this, I just got my webcam in the mail today, so I was wondering if any of this setup worked. Great. You know, it becomes so esoteric because when it comes down to the future of healthcare, we really need to get down and dirty in the trenches and say, how can I move the dial this much? How can I change the filter? I don't even look at it as a filter. I look at it as more of a consciousness. It's going to take so much education to, I mean, I, okay, I got to read this quote because I use this a lot. The doctor of the future will give no medication, but will interest his patients in the care of the human frame diet and in the cause and prevention of disease. Mm. Do you know who wrote that? 
No, but I'd love, I don't. I don't know if anyone else does, but we would love to Thomas Edison in 1903. Before his time. Well, he was before his time, but <laughs> I really do think that that's really where it's at. And I think it's a very long way from where we're at right now with big pharma. And I work in the trenches. I not only work in the psych hospital, like our distinguished lady who just spoke, but I also work in the trenches working with doctors and the consciousness has to shift of people and it has to shift slowly because people are right now, I mean, I'm dealing in the United States, not only with COVID-19, but I'm dealing with riots and curfews. We're locked down at six o'clock tonight. So it's like people are terrified. People cannot move. People don't know what to do. And it's a question of really getting to a place where you can bring them down off of that and move the needle just a little bit, like the 1% that Karen Marie is talking about. If I can, I mean, my human intelligence and my, my goal is to really empower people to change their health by eating one meal that loves their body, mind, and spirit a day. I mean, I know everyone can do that. I know everybody can do that. And I know from all of my work in the trenches and working as a dietitian and a nutrition therapist and all of the work that I've done, I work with eating disorders, is that when you start to move the dial, what ends up happening is people all of a sudden blossom with possibilities. Well, if I can do this, what if I could do this? And if I can do that, what if I can do that? When I used to work with extremely obese people, I did an Optifast type program years ago, and I used to say, just walk five minutes out and five minutes out and build it. And I had people not only lose like 150 pounds, but biking three miles a day. It has to start somewhere. It has to start with education. And it also has to start with moving the needle a bit so that they can feel they can do that. Because right now, we're, I heard the Surgeon General say, boosting your immune system is the most important thing. You know, doing this is the most important thing. Boosting your music. I've heard it from a million people, but nobody's paying lip service to it right now. I am, and those of my colleagues that believe in that, but nobody's saying anything. I think people are so terrified, it's hard for them to move right now. So it's important that they move like one little step at a time so that they can open out their vision to go, oh, I did that. I can do that. Mm. And I think what you're talking about there doesn't just apply to healthcare, right? That applies to everything, everything. everything. Yes. So, Johan, I'd love to, to ask you what Jill's talking about here, educating people, shifting the dial by 1%. On a global scale, that's still such a huge thing. How can we start? Because that, that's what we're talking about. How can we start to get people to move to this 1%? Fantastic. Now, before I answer the question, I just want to say... Thank you so much, Kiri. I'm honored to be here. And I know that I'm in the right place. And with the, let me, I wrote down a quote while we've been talking. 
And I think this summarizes the forum that you've created. It's a quote by Muhammad Ali. And it is, impossible is just a big word thrown around by small men and small women who find it easy to live in the world that they're given rather than to explore the power that they have to change it. Impossible is not a fact. It's an opinion. Impossible is a declaration. It's not a declaration. It's a dare. Impossible is potential. Impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. Now, I've been here, what, about half an hour, and I'm blown away by everything you guys are talking about. Jill, everything you're saying, how are we going to change that, you know, a small little percentage, that 1%. You can make that 1% change in the world. That's millions and in the future, billions of people eventually. How do you change their thought process? And that's through education. The more we learn, the more we read, the more those filters that Nadine was talking about, they fall away. Industrial age of education, that's how we've all been brought up. You know, we're molded into this one thing. And most of us, by the age of, I think, 18, 20, that's where you start to see, hey, there's actually all these filters and things around. And once you start to break those away, the world changes. Your eyes get open. You become awake to the possibilities of, hey, you know, life doesn't have to be one certain way. You can create your own realities. Now, with the topic, topic of how, you know, the future of healthcare, I believe that the future of healthcare is data and AI. It's all patterns and probability. And Dr. Tom, I'm sure, is going to talk about possibility of this in a second. But I believe all around the world, especially now with COVID-19, we've seen that all of our health systems, they're they're struggling. Why are they struggling? There's rising costs. There's varying quality, depending on where you are in the world. Disease diagnosis and treatments, you know, that they're designed for the typical patient. What is a typical patient? The typical patient, we've all done high school mathematics. We understand the sign graph. <laughs> the typical patient is the person in the middle. It's not catering to the people on the, on the other ends. 80 kilogram male, you know, if you give them a certain type of drug, how are they going to react? Well, depending on where they are, is it the t- typical person in the middle? Yes, you're probably going to be a, a good, get a good diagnosis out of that outcome. But the people on the other things, they might have reactions, et cetera. Anyway. I won't go into the whole vaccination thing because we'll be here forever. Um, delivery is fragmented and focused on volume. You know, now doctors cannot do what they what they were born to do. They love healing people, but they're so stuck doing all this paperwork and all this other stuff, which it takes them away from their, their core superpower. Um, there's so much work to be done in healthcare. By the way, my background 20 years ago, I'm an agricultural scientist. And so I was doing my PhD, and so I see how science works. And the annoying thing about science is that it takes so long to get into the into society. By the time you write your PhD, you write the thesis, it gets trials tested. There's years that go on in there. And so we have amazing breakthroughs which kind of come into society for a very, very long time. Medicine has to become more precise. It has to become more affordable. And diseases get to dis-ease. That's what disease is can be precisely diagnosed. Therapy has to be tailored to each person. How are we going to do that? We can only do that via well, big data, by, by understanding all of the data that we have. There's a lot of... Hey, Sam, stop me when I'm ranting. No, no, no. Keep going. Please, please. <laughs> I love it. Um, you know, yeah. One, one of the reasons why this whole contact tracing thing has failed in, in you know, in Australia, it's, it's, it's you know, yeah. it's people believe that the government's there and they're going to try and steal all of their data. They don't realize that, hey, all your data is actually already available. But if you use Google, if you use Facebook, if you use YouTube, you're actually giving away all your, you know, 
most of your data. There's 60,000 data points on each person. So it, it comes to an education, you know. But the more data that we have on any population, on anything, the better we can diagnose, the better we can make decisions on. And so that's why I say big data, patterns, and probability. And Joe, you know, you if I came to you and said, hey, I've been, uh, hey, Joe, you know, I've been eating McDonald's for the last 20 years, and that's my diet. You understand that there's a pattern there. And there's a high probability that I'm going to be getting cholesterol and heart attacks and obesity and all this stuff. But if I say, hey, you know what, during... COVID, I sat here and most of the data that I was feeding into my brain was Kira Marie stuff, as opposed to watching Game of Thrones for three months. You're going to know which person, the different patterns and probability of the person and how they're thinking, right? Anyway, so back onto the track. Each patient right now, the doctors, they are, they are the authorities and they get uh, patients walking there. This is what you have to do. Okay, done. And again, it's sort of like a bit of a sausage factory, but I believe in the future, they're going to be treated like a consumer. It's going to have to be an experience that they have to come. They're going to have choice. They're going to have to engage and the consumer is going to be rewarded for maintaining their health. Now you talk about, do you guys know what Gaffer is? Gaffer is Google Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. They're the biggest companies in the world. They control all the data. They control the way the we see the world because they're controlling everything that you're looking at on the screen. So Gaffer, now Google, has bought Fitbit. Why did they buy a Fitbit? They're a search engine, right? Why did they buy a Fitbit? Because now people are walking around with these devices in their hands and you've got all of that data. Guess where that data is going? It's going straight up to Google. What happens when it goes up to Google? Eventually, they'll be able to say, hey, insurance companies, do you want to come insure these people? Here's a pool of people. Do you want to insure the ones that are working out every day and their premiums are very, very low? Or do you, you know, there's the ones who don't have it, but say, guess what? There's no data on you, therefore you're probably a high risk and it's going to go higher. I think digital technology is going to change the very nature of wellness and healthcare, and we can shape the future if we embrace this technology. Mm. Back to the doctors. AI. Now, we're implementing speech recognition, pattern recognition into medical clinics. Why? Because doctors sit there, they, while they're talking, after they diagnose the patient, which is probably 10 or 15 minutes, after that, what they're doing is they're spending half an hour typing up case notes, doing their insurance procedures, policies, all of those things. They spend so much time, but now it can all be transcripted and done. So having the data is really good. I'll stop talking. I'm going on. <laughs> so, so much gold, though. There's so much gold there. I can see Jill just nodding away and giving you all the thumbs up. <laughs> because I work that way. I work, you know, I work in the trenches, and it does take me like 20 minutes to do an assessment after I even talk to the person, you know. And it's tough, and I think you're right, and I have all of that on my, the things that I came up with. Yeah, we need to innovate, make it better and cheaper, the technology will definitely be good. But, you know, it's also the whole thing that people are very, very, very knowledgeable now. They want answers and they're not getting them. Yep. So this is a very interesting and dynamic time in healthcare. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's, oh, sorry. I was actually going to ask because we've got Dr. Tom here as well. I would love your take, Dr. Tom, on, you know, the thoughts that you'd like to add with already what Nadine and Jill and Johan have shared. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. Can you guys hear me okay? Perfect. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, there is so much coming out of this. Thanks for sharing all of that, Jill and, and Johan. It's, it's all very exciting and it kind of scares me at the same time because there's just so much going on. 
and so many bases to cover. But if I were to kind of simplify and distill all of this down, it comes down to the individual. And that's whether it's the patient or the doctor slash, slash physician, whoever it is. And the way that I have seen it working on both sides is that there is a, a sense of entitlement almost for both sides that, oh, someone else should do this. Someone else should take care of this. Oh, the, the, the physicians, the doctors are saying, some patients should understand me. They should know what I'm doing. I've got all this research. I've got all this data. They should just listen and follow along. Whereas on the other side, you've got the patients who are like, well, it's just all too much for me. Someone should just tell me what to do, right? And so there is this offloading of that responsibility. And I think the biggest shift will be when we break that down and people take ownership of that on both sides. And Denise was really talking about what the way that I understood it was the, the, the patient side, people listening, going, okay, what's important? What should I listen to? What should I be aware of? And the challenge that I see there is that it's just, there is just so much out there, right? Even just like, for example, on, on YouTube, there is more content coming out in a day than anyone can consume in a lifetime. And recently, I've been trying to kind of follow along what's happening in the political situation in Australia. And, you know, journalism being what it is, I thought I'll go to the source and I'll watch the presentations by the prime minister myself. And I couldn't keep up even though it's you know, 30 minutes or an hour a day or every few days, I was like, I can't keep up with this. So then I, we start to look at, okay, who are the trusted voices that can break this thing down for me? Right? Who can I listen to? Who's going, who can I believe? And then the funny thing about that is who we choose to believe and listen to doesn't necessarily mean they're right or they have the facts. And so then the, the way that I kind of work these days is I work with physicians to go, right, just because you know this stuff doesn't mean people are going to listen and believe, to, believe what you say or that you actually understand the people that you're talking to. You need to take more ownership of this, step forward, talk to them, see what they need, but then also take the responsibility of sharing that information and sharing it well because you've... But the kind of thing that frustrates me at the moment is that there are a lot of people giving health advice who really should not be, but it's just because they've learned about how to use social media, how to connect with people and resonate with them. Whereas if you think of your average physician or doctor, is your impression of them as a warm, engaging person or as a blank, cold person who stares at their screen and doesn't really care for you just kind of talking through the people, right? It's the former. And so I'm like, right. And that's not the patient's responsibility to listen to. It's yours. And you need to actually step forward and really engage with them and learn about, you know, marketing and about getting the word out there, but not in like big pharma, sell your drugs type of thing, but more connecting a human way. And this is something that's come out recently, like what Johan was saying with all the artificial intelligence coming out and robotics and, and, a year and a half ago or so, Kira Marie and I were in a, in a really cool location and we're speaking to some really interesting people. And one of the things that came out was that doctors are going to slowly be replaced by iPads. And so the information transfer that people see, often the patient doctor consultation is seen as an information transfer. I have this problem. You have the solution. Give this my problem. Give me the the solution and off we go. And that's why you can compact it to 10 minute conversation, right? 
because it's just that information transfer. But when you remove that, when you can do with an iPad and some AI and robotics, what's left? Well, it's that human, okay, how are you, right? How are you going? It's the, it's the you know, the touching them on the shoulder, you're gonna be okay. My dad is a, has been, I've got a line of doctors in my family. And one of the things that, one of the most powerful lessons that my dad shared with me is that often in, in, in medicine, it's not the information, but it's your presence. And the way it's, it's often just like a reassuring touch on the shoulder or the tone of voice or the, just being there with them that can make a huge difference. So, yeah, so as Michelle's saying there, that all that's going to be left is a human element. Mm, mm. And so right now what social media and, and whether it's social media or marketing or, or, or the way that we're sharing information, what's coming out is the human element if we're doing it right. A slight disruption to the conversation. I have a question for you. Are you even a little curious to see how you can use your platform to change the conversation? To maybe design solution pathways where you have certainty and afford movement? Or truly do you want to increase your economic and cultural impact? Awesome human, if you want to lead, to pioneer a new approach, to role model what is possible and to leave sustainable footprints for the generations to come, then I would love for you to reach out to me and the team to see if we're the right fit to make this a reality for you. And if we're not, no hard feelings, as I know many awesome humans who may be the right one. Okay. I've included three ways in the show notes where you can begin a pathway with us on a journey to your next level. One, a strategy analysis. Two, the next growth incubator cycle. Three, a potential investment partnership. As founder and CEO of Decision Velocity Global, I'm all about building a sustainable, scalable growth ecosystem where humanity like you are stakeholders to design cutting edge solution pathways and to narrow the gap from problem to solution. I want you to come on this journey with me and others and not to be left behind. There is a seat at the table for you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. That's what I do. The problem is in this country, they don't pay for me. They have to pay out of pocket for me. So my only, my and my alternative stuff, because I'm 25 years in the trenches with alternative medicine. I mean, I know some of these very famous now guys in alternative medicine by their first names because I started there. I believed in it. Yeah. But here's the thing. They do not pay me for my time in the trend, you know, working with people doing exactly what you said. Yeah. They don't. The doctors don't pay or the patients don't pay? The insurance does not. I'm sorry. Thank you. Insurance doesn't pay for me. I think I get like two or maybe six visits for weight loss. We all know that that doesn't work. You know, you yeah, know no. the only reason why people who come for weight loss don't lose weight, I feel one of the reasons it's very multivectorial like everything we do is because no one sits there and holds their hand and says, here's, okay, you need to just go do this right now. 
I need to be there for you. That's why my practice, I have a, a whole virtual practice with a chat thing and people can take pictures of what they eat. And to me, that's what works for me. That's what works for them. I have very successful people doing alternative stuff yeah. and they're healing because I provide that. Let's right. jump in right there. We've talked about the technology, the human connection, and the topic is the future of healthcare. So I'm going to throw it out to anyone that wants to take this. Johan, you were talking about our information going to the cloud so that, that our healthcare is more precise. We're also talking about human connection. That makes a difference because our healthcare, you know, our doctors, our healthcare professionals also are looking through their own lens. So, so that's not as precise. But is that technology taking away our ability as humans to tap into our own intuition of how we're feeling? Like, are we giving away our healthcare? to something that's on our wrist instead of listening like do we need to have something telling us to have a drink of water instead of being able to go i'm thirsty maybe i'll just pick up a glass of water and i just want to leave it to you to may, may i enter may i interject something there as i'm listening one of the gifts that i'm providing for for all of you is access to a technology that is just now coming into the marketplace but it's been 30 years in clinical development. And that is exactly what you just spoke to, Samantha. And that is the ability through, you've heard of IQ and EQ, through VQ is uh, the ability to technology to analyze and analyze accurately your state, if you will, your vibrational state. So what's your vibe? And it's simply what you'll do, each of you, when you take, take the uh, sample test, you will count to 100. It takes 90 seconds. And after that, it's going to inform you through analytics and algorithms exactly what your state is. Now, here's what's important about that. Oftentimes, it is our state that impacts our condition, whether we're going to see a psychologist or psychiatrist, or physician, it is our state. How are we better able to impact, improve ourselves if we understand what our state is? This works in the workplace as well. And what's exciting about it is that the entire company that controls and developed this company are all women, and they understand it from that perspective. And I'm the only person who has the authority to be able to deliver it to you. And because I, too, have a woman inside of me, which I'm in connection with, I'm not gay or anything. I'm just saying that I'm in connection with my feminine side. So, so that's okay. But when you try this, you'll simply count to 100. At the end of that count, the answer to the question is of how do I keep in touch with my state becomes answered through technology. I love that. I love that. All right. Thank I'm you. I'm dying to try it. Oh no. Yeah. At 75, I'm still dying to try stuff. Cause I got to tell you, I have watched this whole thing just explode in the past 25 years. The stuff that people were saying to us 
was lunatic fringe is now mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I am so yeah. happy about that because it's what I vibrate to. It's, it's my soul. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful. So Sam, you, you were asking me about... The, is, the, the balance between technology and the human element, I guess, is yeah, that sure. blended in. I, I think having technology, having all the data at your fingertips is going to enhance the human element because the person doesn't have to sit there and ask you the same questions that you, you've, you've been asked by the admin person, by the secretary, the forms that you filled out, and then you're sitting there in front of a doctor and the doctor says, okay, tell me again, what's the symptoms? By the time the doctor, you know, the filters we're talking about, mm -hmm. the doctor can look at the chart, look at, it's like looking at a PNL. They can look at it and go, okay, I understand what the problem is. Let me explain to you. I have two children. There's a lot of, you know, because I have children, I've been to the hospital quite a few times. One of the things that happens when, I'll tell you a little personal story. When my daughter was born, she was born without a year. And as I watched her come out of my, uh, as she was getting, uh, as she was being born, I just uh, looked up and see the horror on all the other people's faces. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? Look down. I'm like, oh my God. And my wife's like, hey, can I see my baby? I'm like, oh my God. But first thing they told us in after like 10 minutes was, please don't go on Google. Please don't go on Google. Because they don't want you to see all the stuff that's on there. And they want that human element of the doctor to be, be able to explain, hey, guess what? That's fine. It's just a cosmetic thing. It's fixable. One in 10,000 people have this. We've got specialized clinics and this is what's going to happen. This is the process. However, too many people go to Google and, you know, Dr. Google messes with their heads. So to answer your question, having all the data in front of the doctor, I think adds a lot more because they can see and they can say, hey, I understand what's wrong with you. Let me explain to you what's about to happen in the process you're about to go through. Therefore, you don't freak out. So instead of spending 20 minutes explaining the same situation all over again, yeah, I think the customer journey, there's so many different customer journeys. One of our clients, they're one of the biggest IVF facilitators in Australia. When people are going to get IVF, the women would, you know, it's, it's an expensive treatment, $13,000, $15,000. After they get the treatment, the next two, they're going to wait two weeks to get the results. Those two weeks in the female's life are the most stressful in their life because, hey, they've just coughed up a whole lot of money and now they have to wait to see whether the egg has attached. Those two weeks causes so much stress that they have a huge failure rate. One simple thing that we did was we put in a customer journey into it saying, hey, congratulations, you just had this treatment today. This is what you're going to experience tomorrow. Here's some case studies of other females who've been through this process. This is what they hear some videos, watch, listen, learn from them. And every day for the next two weeks, they get these videos, they get encouragement, they get emails, they get text messages, which enhance their customer journey. And the success rate went through the roof because they knew that they weren't alone. They knew that they, other people had gone and done this before them and they weren't, you know, they don't have to stress about it. So I think having more data allows us to make better decisions, allows to, us to design the customer journey for those people and then therefore giving them a better experience mm. and by then having a better experience the success rates go through the roof what i love about that is using the technology and that preciseness that you were talking about to add to the human connection and not taking it away that's the takeout that i got dr tom i'd love you to give us your thoughts on what we're talking about here so i think technology is not so much the solution but rather a tool 
It's like saying the problem to my leaky roof is a hammer. Well, not quite. It's, it's how you use that hammer and what you do with it that's going to help to fix that. And like I was saying earlier, my kind of thoughts on it, on one hand, it's very exciting. On the other hand, it's very scary because it is, like Johan was saying, that's the exciting stuff What he mentioned that it's awesome. Like it can shortcut a lot of things. It can lead to that human connection. But it also can lead to what I was saying earlier, where even more release of that responsibility and ownership onto the technology, right? I have a Fitbit, but there's a certain level of, you know, I can let it tell me what to do or I can go within and go, okay, what do I need to know based on what I've taken the steps to learn about? Yeah, and it's balancing. I can see, Juliet, that it's balancing the two, but also understanding that once the technology, it's like, where does it go and who owns it and what will they do with it and where will it go and all that kind of stuff. It is a scary bit of it. And at the same time, mm-hmm. it can help, but it's not necessarily a fix. It's a tool and it's up to the, the user, but also the people who are controlling it to determine the balance for be- best effects and what people are comfortable with, with sharing and engaging but ultimately, I think we have to be aware of, of its limitations and be able to go within and go, okay, what is right for me rather than externally into a Fitbit because that's still going external, right? Let, let's let this thing to tell me what to do rather than, okay, as we were saying earlier, you know, it's up to me to decide to drink that water to exercise what's right for me. And that, but that's hard, right? That's hard to do. It's hard to learn how to do. It's hard to remember to do with everything else that's going on in life. And so then it becomes like an like a easy solution to go, right, well, don't worry, let me just take care of that for you and you don't have to think about it, which is then becomes scary because you're kind of releasing what's really important to, to somebody else. But again, it can be also used for incredibly amazing things to remove that cold, hard face of, of oh, let's just pump through patients because I, I have so many to see and I've got so much paperwork to do. We can shortcut it and skip to the human element the thing is, it's just like learning to use a hammer. We're going to stub our, our fingers a few times and make a few mistakes along the way to be able to actually uh, use it effectively in the long term. Totally. Jill, yeah. I'd love your take. What needs to happen on a global level? We're talking very much about what's happening in our own houses, I guess. You know, what, hap- what needs to happen on a global level is education. And I really, okay, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've watched... Okay, here's some statistics if you want statistics. Okay, 90% of all diseases, up to 90%, because I think 90% is diabetes, and this, these are statistics, so you asked us for a fact, can be prevented with diet exercise, okay? You know, I mean, it's amazing to me. We have that statistic forever, right, from Walter Willett. The amazing guy from uh, Harvard? Yeah, I think he's from Harvard. Anyway, childhood obesity levels are expected to increase 60% over the next decade, reaching 454 million by 2030. Okay? These are the statistics. I have more, but let's just go there because, you know, the thing that needs to happen is a whole new mindset of medicine. And I have to tell you that what I see in the trenches is that modern medicine is failing us because we're dealing with trying to, you know, it's, it's the absence of disease. We're treating the absence of disease. 
You have a symptom, take a pill. You have a symptom, take a pill. I work daily with doctors, and that's what they do, okay? They do that. And it's not, look, when I broke my ankle, I was so glad to have the top orthos fix it because it was a mess. But I really believe that we've lost our focus here with what's important. Here's another statistic. 23.5 million Americans live with autoimmune disease. There are 80 different kinds of autoimmune disease, including diabetes, heart disease, and cancer. And nobody's talking about it. So you're talking specifically about, and I'm asking, I guess not telling, are you talking specifically about educating the medical professionals to well, be brave be enough helpful. to have the conversations? That would be helpful because, you know, we're constantly, I read articles all the time about the fact that doctors know nothing about nutrition and then they pay lip service to some little program out in God only knows where that's educating doctors. I have doctors daily recommending a supplement for people who don't eat with meals. Does that make sense to you? I'm sorry. I don't mean to knock doctors. They're amazing. They do amazing uh, things. No, I, I totally get it. I've seen that. Some of the things that they're recommending, I was, I was like, really? <laughs> Let's take a step back for a second. Even as a medical student, I was saying, okay, so you recommended this mood-altering pill, but aren't they just worried about this, this, this? Can't we just, can't we just support them through this, 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 rather than just give them the pill with all the side effects and consequences? And then, yeah but I don't have time for that. Mm. I understand that. And that's kind of really where the disconnect is with that because, again, they don't pay for me. I mean, they pay for me to make recommendations just like you guys do when I'm working in the trenches at the hospitals, the nursing homes, whatever. But they don't, they don't pay for me to really look at what's going on here. What's going on with this person? That's why I do my private practice. I, you know, I can't deal with it. I have to look at it and go, oh, they're not eating. I need to recommend this or this or this. And I think there's a huge disconnect there. So uh, let's jump in, Johan, because we do have to tie it up because we're going to think tank. What would you like to leave this conversation with? What's the important thing that you want us to take away? So I think you guys are the 1% if you're here. Education starts with that 1% deciding that they're going to help make it the norm. You know, yes. remember the sign graph. And unfortunately, it's not going to be through the education of doctors. There's doctors who want to educate themselves. They will, and they will then learn. But if you trace the money back and realize where the doctors are getting educated from, where they're getting learning. I've got friends who are who are doctors who say, hey, you need to take this pill and all this stuff. I'm like, well, where, you know, how are you doing this? Why are you telling me to take a pill, for example? And, well, the, the sales rep told me that if I tell you to take this, this is going to be beneficial for you. Anyway, we're not going to get into that. But education doesn't start with educating from the institutions that the doctors are attending. It's opening up their minds and getting them to understand that there's different filters that when you break them away, there's different ways to treat people. And by treating the people, the you know, in the way they're meant to be treated is actually going to cause the education is going to change the way they, they do it. I don't know how to articulate it, but perhaps Jill or Tom can take that through us making it mainstream through education, becoming part of what everybody does. And I'm, you know, 
I'm in business and I talk to my people about health. It's just part of what we do. We need them to be healthy. We need them to be strong. We need them to be mentally healthy, physically healthy, so that they can perform at their peak. You know, and in America, I believe now health is becoming, or you're seeing your doctor is becoming a subscription service because too many men, they only go to the doctor once, twice a year, maybe maximum. But now if you have to see your doctor or have to even check in with your doctor once a month, you're now paying for a subscription service. It's their job to make sure that you're healthy. The more healthy you are, the more productive you are in society. The more productive you are, the longer that you live, the more taxes you can pay. That's the incentive for the government to keep us alive, you know. But now we're talking about an evolution of a community, which then evolves the city. Now cities will be getting incentives for, hey, you know, you have a healthy city. You're not a big burden on the healthcare system. You guys are paying more taxes because you're living longer and all these other stuff. Therefore, that's going to help evolve. So it's a change in thinking. It's a change in education. I love that, love that, love that. And Dr. Tom, what would you like to, what would you like to leave us with before we go? I think what Johan said was spot on there. The education is definitely on both sides and taking ownership of the results. I think that's the key, taking ownership of the outcomes we want to achieve. It's not, we can't offload that to the other party, whether it's the doctors or the patients, it's both sides going to go, right, how do I actually do this? Where do I go from here? Because it's my health or it's my patient's health, it's my results, my outcomes that I want to achieve, what can I do about that? Mm. Mm. And to me, it's changing the mindset, really changing the mindset. And really, I had, there was a gal, another Harvard gal who recommended Focus Factories a while ago, a professor. And I really do believe that doctors need support staff for all of this. Doctors do not have to do it themselves. They can have a support staff. There is no support staff. There is a huge disconnect. Mm. Thank you so much, Jill and Dr. Tom and Johan. You've shared so much, so much value. Amazing droplets of wisdom for you from today's episode. Make sure you subscribe, leave awesome ratings and reviews. Our hope is that this product creates a new awareness, activates ownership to what is next, and a curiosity for the need to be a part of the change to make footsteps of sustainability from today onwards. If you want to further your journey with us, join us at our next Global Human Intelligence Forum or apply to our next Leaders Movement Parlor. Both links are in the show notes. We appreciate you. Help us to build a tribe and make humanity as stakeholders. To achieve this together, recommend this podcast to leaders, innovators, pioneers, future thinkers, and movement changers. Big love. See you on the next Global Human Intelligence Podcast.